0: Everybody, welcome back to Stories with Bree. I'm super excited about my special guest today. It's one of my books to Bessies. Her name is M Rumble, better known as lithropy NYC on Bookstagram, and she will tell you a little bit more about herself and what she does as a career. So go ahead, M.
1: Hi, everybody. Thank you so much, Bree, for having me. You know, I'm a big fan of your platform. I'm a big fan of Black librarians. Period. And I'm just so excited to be here with you today. So yeah, I'm a psychotherapist and a bibliotherapist from the Bronx, New York. I started off my career as a school social worker uh, working in the Bronx. And honestly, it was just super hard for me to get my students into the counseling room. There's a stigma around mental health and counseling. And so that's really where I started uh, as a bibliotherapist, was pushing into classrooms, supporting classroom teachers to make their ELA lessons fun and accessible using Uh, the creative arts, journaling, storytelling, uh, role-playing, dramatic, uh, you know, theatrical representations of characters in the books. And so by using the art of storytelling in the classroom, I was able to make it uh, fun for the students, gain their trust, and also get them interested in the power of stories, not just the stories that we read, but their own stories. And that sort of started, I guess it ignited the flame of bibliotherapy. And I had a supervisor, a clinical supervisor along the way, because when you're a school social worker, you're usually not um, supported by a clinical supervisor, you're supervised by your principal. So I paid for an outside clinical supervisor because I needed to get my my counselor filling hours signed off on so that I can obtain my clinical licensure to have my own practice. So I was already thinking ahead of the game and I was lucky enough to have a clinical supervisor who told me, he's like, you know, bibliotherapy is actually a modality that you can get, you know, certified in. And there's like a whole history of therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists who've implemented the technique of literature as a healing tool. Um, And if you're serious about this, like, we should really, you know, look into this for you, because you're really great at this. And, you know, literature, I had gotten my BA from Mount Holyoke College in English language and lit and studied abroad in England for a year at the University of York. So literature is just my thing. And I went to a creative arts high school, um, a creative writing program. So I, you know, the arts is like my foundation and my heart. So it just all merged together beautifully in my clinical training. And I became a bibliotherapist. Once I got my clinical independent licensure, I was like, you know what? I'm ready to start my own private practice. And then I had my son, I had my daughter during the pandemic, and it was like, Now is the time because I couldn't go back to schools after having my daughter, Um, you know, it was 2020, the world was in shambles. I think we're still in shambles. (laughs) But that prompted me to start actually start Literary NYC, which is a merge between literature and therapy, my favorite things and so now I have my own therapy practice here in the Bronx where I strictly do bibliotherapy and of course I'm still a licensed you know psychotherapist so it's not my only modality but it's my favorite and that's sort of uh, yeah how we got started.
0: Literary NYC is like amazing first off congratulations on all of the accolades congratulations on all of those different milestones as you were talking you. I was like Girl, you get things <laughs> done, you're doing amazing things. And it's interesting that you um, said that you started off in schools. It's like, I've been getting a lot of, con- having a lot of conversations um, with school librarians, with people who work with children, with people who work at all levels, actually K through 12. And I'm just like, I don't know why y'all coming my way <laughs> or why I am getting... Um, hopefully you can still hear me. I don't don't know why y'all coming my way or why for any reason I am literally attracting these people, but I'm
1: here for it. (laughs) I love it. Maybe you're meant to be in a school or open up your own Um, library um, in a school or a hospital. You never know. That's what bibliotherapy is about. And you know, there's a, a really rich history of the role that librarians played in the development and the professionalization of bibliotherapy so I love to hear you say that I could
0: believe it I could believe it and it's just like you know I don't really have a whole huge desire to work with children that's probably (laughs) it keeps coming my way (laughs) and (laughs) that's always been an area for me where I'm like nah I'm all right give me the it's a lot it's a lot especially for the 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 little babies and stuff but if you're past I say I work with sometimes you know middle schoolers don't they get a bad rep but I work with middle schoolers high schoolers and then older but younger children tend to be drawn to me and I'd be like go away (laughs) you know (laughs) get away from me but I do understand it but maybe at some point that is like um I do have a separate desire for that. I just have not implemented it. So you, you're you right on track when you're talking about, you know, building a school system or something like that or a library for um, children because I've always had a desire and I have not been able to implement it. But one of my desires has been to create a school of performing arts, which is something that you said that you went to. Yes. So one of my desires has been to do that. I have not done that. Um, and then another desire of mine is to create these different types of hubs for um, children and, and adults, adults respectively, to have access to technology. Um, so that has always been a, a really good uh, point for me.
1: Yeah, I love what you said about, you know, just wanting to make literature and literacy more accessible to children with special needs. Um, and, you know, assistive technology, because my son just turned four, he's autistic, and he's non-verbal, and not non-speaking, though. But I will tell you, I had so many, like, barriers to getting him assistive technology. I was constantly being told, like, he's too young, mm-hmm. the technology is too expensive. But because thankfully I have the lens of being a social worker and being a therapist. I knew how to advocate. I, I just found the funding. I, I was going crazy applying for funding and looking at different programs. And thankfully um, I was able to get him assistive technology. And once I saw how responsive he was to it, I really understood the difference between like non-speaking and then non-verbal children. And I started to even use some of these techniques of visual storytelling, like that's all that PEX, which is the communication system that most um, schools and parents use for non-verbal um, autistics. That's all PEX is, it's like the picture and the word. And my son really took to these visuals that I would put around the house and you know it started off really small like a chart on how to use the potty next to the toilet and a chart on how to brush your teeth with the four steps you know um, outlined by the sink and then I started thinking wow like let me start buying him books children's books with no words and that's like the, the cool thing now we have so much more diversity. We have a long way to go, but there's so much more diversity in books. And I did found, find a few really good books uh, that were just pictures and no words. And he really took to it and I would play it up with him we'd go through pictures and, oh, look, you know, she's got one pancake. Oh, now she's got eight pancakes. Oh my goodness. The cat, the cat is being so bad. The cat just ate one of the pancakes. Now there's seven left. And he would just be so tickled. And it created a bond between us because I think in that moment he realized like, oh, like language, mommy's teaching me language and that storytelling, like Everything has a narrative to it, just like brushing your teeth does, just like using the potty does. And so that also gave me a passion towards working with neurodivergent children who a lot of times get cast aside because we think oh well they're nonverbal so they probably don't understand much and it's like no they understand even for children who are not speaking they understand and if we can give them the tools to understand how language works and to make it accessible in the ways that they you know could use language when they're ready at their own pace like that's that's what sets the foundation Um, because language is everywhere and storytelling is everywhere. It's not just limited to those that can read or those that are highly verbal, you know, or not. So that was also a huge thing for me in
0: this journey. Oh my gosh, you just, um, uh, you said so many things. It's just like, uh, I I know this is only supposed to be an hour, but we could be here all day talking about this. And that is something that I think is very important because you just actually opened up a door for me in an area that I didn't even think about which the fact that you need books that don't always have words but books with just pictures are helpful and that's how you expand idea and belonging so yeah for those of you who don't know what idea means it's um you know inclusive inclusion diversity equity accessibility and then b for belonging so that's how you include that those things like That just sparked a thing in me, so I'm like, ooh, the idea, because I also am a publisher, on top of me being a librarian, I'm a publisher as well, I work with self-publishing independent authors, and that's an area that's probably untapped, and not, and like you said, you didn't have a lot in that area, but the fact that we can probably increase that because I told people who are illustrators who may be able to create and they can use their art in that way and they want to create those types of books and they want to create children's literature but I don't even think that that was an area where they considered that maybe I could just create picture books that yes. don't necessarily have a narrative or a story with it yeah or you can use the narrative of the on the story as a supplement to the the book, so that parents who are entering into these spaces where they have children who are autistic, who are either nonverbal or non-speaking, they can have something to to you know bounce ideas off of to just expand the story. But then it yes. also gets our creative juices flowing because now we can create our own story for the book which I think is really amazing, but I don't want to get us too far in the weeds because I like to try to do some icebreakers. We've been doing really well, but um, I want to go back, just step back a little bit and talk to you about, um, if you can remember, what was your favorite childhood book?
1: Yeah, I had so many. That was a really hard question for me to think about because I've i always been a reader. You know, some people become readers later on in life and some people have always been, you know, addicted to books. And I feel like I have always been addicted to books. So yeah. I I will say, like, I had many favorite books, but the book that I think really sticks with me mm-hmm. is Mafaro's Beautiful Daughters because it was the first retelling of Cinderella, the first retelling of, any major fairy tale that I read that was representative you know of being a black girl Mm -hmm. and it was my first time reading such a beautiful portrayal of like an African nation and just I'll never forget like the illustrations in the book and I just love that book so much and I actually still use that book in bibliotherapy Mm -hmm. um with both children and adults so that book is really really special to me for that reason and I grew you know I don't know if I've shared that with you my mother's Puerto Rican but racially my mother's really white and like she could pass if she wanted to she never would she never would I gotta put that on the record but you know my mother is very very white and could pass my father is an African-American very very dark very very proud black man so growing up I grew up my parents were teen parents so my mother's mother raised me because she was too busy being 15 she had to go to school and you know same thing with my dad my dad was actually um a bit older but he once he was able to signed off to go to the military because in his mind he needed to provide for me Mm -hmm. so i didn't grow up with like much in like a pro-black affirming household i grew up in my grandmother's house it was very much like whenever i encountered any kind of comment about my skin complexion or the difference of texture in my hair compared to my mother's it was always sort of brushed off like you're not black you're puerto rican you know what i mean and so reading my beautiful daughters it was like the first time that i saw these depictions of like a black family and they were a royal black family and like beautiful black girls that you know looked like me and It just, it meant so much to my racial identity development and just my girlhood experience.
0: Yeah. Cause we don't really talk a lot about biracial children. Like it's getting to the point where we're creating more space for that, but it's always been sort of like, either you have to pick a side, you can't really yep. encourage or um, be proud of both sides of your family. You have to be either Puerto, like you say, you have to either be Puerto Rican or you have to be black. And you're like, no, but I am both Puerto Rican and black. Exactly. So I have the ability to create my own type of culture and right. my, my own belonging and, and 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 I also did not grow up I grew up a little differently as well I was raised by my grandmother too but I was about grandmas <laughs> yeah, shout out to the grandmas but I was raised by my father's mother and but she um And I am fully black as far as I know, but of course, you know, my skin tone don't come just from African lineage. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. we know that. Um, But so I can be honest and clear about that because we all know how light skinned black folk ended up being. Mm -hmm.
1: Talk about it.
0: But, um you know we, we don't, we'd like to try to erase that part of history but um, I have all kinds of um, cultures in my family both given and both um, adopted
1: and
0: mm. it's always, interesting when people start talking and having conversations when it comes to diversity and race because it's like you're you're scared to have those conversations because you don't want to deal with the difficulties and it's like no but we all of that is what makes us who we are and Mafaro's Beautiful Dartist has this this is not the first time that book has come up on this show so I I see how impactful it is I never read it but now it makes me want to read it because it's like oh these women are talking about this story and they're talking about how it um affirmed them that you know you wouldn't have gotten anywhere else had you not seek or sought out that information on your own and i agree with you i have, i don't know i don't remember a time where i have never been surrounded by books books bring me comfort they are yes. my safe space. libraries yes. are literally my safe space like that yeah. is literally the place where i find the most peace and i feel less anxious and so being surrounded by books i always no matter where i am no matter where i live there has to be books in the house yes uh, and um my favorite Disney movie, even though as you as I grow up and get older, is Beauty and the Beast. And as you see, there are some complications. Yes, there. but there's a beautiful library. A library. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, "Oh, that's really why I like this story." You're it's- thinking in your head, "I'll be with the Beast Shoot, He got all <laughs> them books. Are they diverse? <laughs> this is really why I like this story. It's because he gifted Belle. This yeah. beautiful library. Now, you true, truth be told, she was still in many ways his prisoner, but he gifted her this beautiful library. She had this sliding ladder,
1: she right. and books to the ceiling. I'm like, that's the dream, right? Right. Yeah. Like, that's a good man, right there. I mean, you know, not without complication, like you said, but, <laughs> but come on, come on. And I was just like, this is
0: the move for me, and so but. even think we can go on a tangent about Beauty and the Beast but I just was Mm like this is it but I I, I, I'm so happy that you shared that part of your story because that once again is just another outlet for people to have a conversation and I can Mm -hmm. imagine that those things come up as Mm -hmm. you're going through your sessions with your clients and you're picking books that kind of center around culture and racial identity and things of that nature and that kind of brings us into marrying black cake into our conversation because black cake in many ways did deal with identity and sexuality absolutely um neglect and abuse. In so many ways, and in, in yep. family secrets, it, it dealt with all of these different things. And I know much about family secrets because if you grew up in a black household, saying in a black household is what happens in this house stays in this house. That's right. Reality, it does not stay in the house because right. the trauma that that disassociation, however. Yep. Your identity goes with you wherever you go. And um, so Charmaine Wilkerson did a really good job in Black Cake of really putting some of that, those things in the forefront and and talking about how we feel and how you feel about it. And so um from a bibliotherapist standpoint, give me some of your thoughts about this book and about this this the conversations and narratives that were happening there.
1: Absolutely. I mean, this book just cover so much right it's a very ambitious book it brought up a lot for people some people love this book and some people don't love it so much <laughs> and I get it because it you know I think with all multi-generational stories it's an ambitious undertaking and this book does take us through you know multiple narratives so it's not just like a multi-generational story told through one lens where we're hearing from everybody we're hearing from you know Benny, Um, we're hearing from the, see, even now, as I'm talking in my head, I'm like, goodness, there's like 10 characters floating through my (laughs) head. But we hear from the sibling's perspective, we hear from the abandoned sibling, then you got Mr. Mitch, the attorney, then we got mom's, you know, storytelling through her tapes. But then the author also gives us this background from sort of like this third person narration of mom's story as a child and and how she got to um the point where she is now telling her children the true story about her life the full story about her life through these tapes so it it takes you on an emotional roller coaster and the whole time you're just trying to (laughs) decide like okay whose story because I think this also is true about families right like everybody remembers things differently Yes. So there's moments in the story where as we're listening to mom's tapes, like the siblings don't always agree with mom's retelling. And then as she's telling the story of her life, she's also sharing secrets yes. that, she, that they didn't know about. So we're kind of going on this journey with the siblings together mm-hmm. and having the reactions that they're having together while trying to process how we feel about their reactions Mm -hmm. um and I want to make sure I'm getting all the characters names correctly so let me refer to the book because I want to make sure we got so many characters I know (laughs) is the mom but of course that wasn't her real name sorry spoiler alert spoiler alert (laughs) I know let's I'm gonna try not to do any spoiler alerts the siblings are B and B it's
0: it's Benny and Benny Oh, no. Benedetta is Benny. And then
1: uh, his name is Barry. Byron. Byron, Byron, right? So Benny and Byron. And that's another thing I loved about the way that the story is told, because I think when we talk about like family dynamics and intergenerational trauma and things like that, we don't place so much emphasis on the sibling dynamic and book really highlights that especially in a sibling group of two because there is a way that that sibling dynamic is competitive in nature so even as like Benny and Byron are processing their grief like Benny's looking at Byron like you wouldn't know what it's like to be you know abandoned and rejected because you were like the shining star but Byron doesn't remember it that way in Byron's mind he's in his mind he's like I loved my little sister. I would have went to bat for you. I just didn't know what you needed at the time because you ran away. And so everybody's understanding of the past and the memories that they've recorded about the past are, are in conflict. Yes. Yes. And so that's, I think as a therapist, like that is something that I enjoy about the story because it leaves nuance for the truth that, First of all, it's complicated in families. Everybody remembers the past differently. Everybody has a different lens about like what mistakes were made and what it cost them. And the mistakes that were made, especially the mistakes parents make, impact everybody differently. And we see that with with Benny and uh, and Byron, the only thing I will say, like, as a reader, I was left wanting more for Mabel, because Mabel is the child who was abandoned by mom, and we don't really meet Mabel until part four, and by then, it's already the end of the story, and as a reader, you're already, like, listen, are we going to eat this black cake or not? When are we going to get some relief from all this grief we've been processing? <laughs> because it's a lot. It's a lot. And you just want to know that like the author is going to tie things up. It doesn't have to be nicely, but like, give us some closure here. Give me something, man. Something, Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs>
0: did you feel that way too? Yes. And you know what, you just brought up a very great point. And I didn't think about it to now, because I will say that in the process of me listening, because I actually read it as an audio book. Okay. So in the process of me listening, I do kind of remember me saying, okay, but where's Mabel? Where yeah. does she go? And I do remember there was a certain point where something happened. I can't pinpoint it exactly. But I was like, oh, that must mean that Mabel is about to address this. And then she fell yeah. up. And I was like,
1: wait. Right. Right.
0: Why are we going back to it? I think we went back to another sibling. And I mean, I understand that I do understand the way that Charmaine set it up. She set it up to where bear were um Benny and Byron were the main characters in the story alongside of them um, being adjacent to their mom. Because technically Covey would be considered a main character, but to be honest, the book is going in a flow that seems like it's a stream after death. And only she's not being center stage, but she's more so a character in their stories. And it talks about how um, you said how family dynamics are very complicated. They are because, you know, it brings to mind when you were talking is that three truths, Mm. my side and the truth Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and, because we do and some of us um i i say all the time that there are three sides to a story their side my side and the truth but i try to tailor my side as close to the truth as possible Mm -hmm. um but because we do know that some people operate in revisionist histories okay um, as we see in uh i.e america
1: (laughs) got it
0: we operate in these revisionist histories because we don't want to feel bad about ourselves. We mm-hmm. don't want to think about the fact that we could have possibly caused someone pain because contrary to, to what other people say, that is kind of against the nature of who we were originally designed to be, which it was not these evil, vile, mm-hmm. you know, self, uh, self-loathing self you know, all those types of people. We weren't, we weren't really designed to be that way ultimately but then that's how we happen if you yeah. take it from a biblical standpoint but that's you know that's me as a Christian um, but it their stories also speaks to like you said when it came to Benny it speaks to the pain that they felt because Absolutely. Benny did not feel accepted so she has a concept and a narrative for how their parents were yeah Barry uh Byron you want to call him Barry I think he was called Barry at some point yeah and so Byron Byron want Byron is like yes I'm still living this with you but also I had a hard time too because I had to carry the burden or the weight of you being able to do whatever it is that you desired and wanted to do as the free-spirited child quote Mm -hmm. unquote Mm -hmm. Um, And so we, (laughs) that even just forced me, this story forced me to even think about my own life. Yep, same. My siblings and my relationships with my siblings are very strained in many ways. Um, I've tried my best to, you know, make, have healthier relationships with my siblings, but it doesn't always work out that way. So it is what it is. And that's really- I hear
1: you saying I can totally relate to that you know yeah. I even now like I without getting too much into my personal story I'm the oldest of six on my mother's side and three on my father's and because I grew up with my grandmother you know I just had a very different life and in my mind I am like the black sheep because I am the child that didn't grow up with my parents and I had more of a parentified, Um, role you know with my siblings and so in their mind they're like how do you have wounds like mom and dad put you on a pedestal you're actually the one that like they love the most or they'll brag on the most and in my mind I'm like I was not parented (laughs) so like you know and they and they want to be or whatever idea they have of how my parents regard me they want that And I'm looking at them like, well, at least you got the chance to have like a childhood and actually be parented and experience that bond with them. So it just goes to show you how like the the lens is so different depending on which sibling you speak to in a sibling group. And then when there's only two siblings, it's more intensified because you are the only mirror for the other sibling. And so in many ways, even though Benny feels like she was rejected and abandoned, Byron feels abandoned because he's like, yo, you left, you abandoned me. And now I have to be, I have to fill the hole that you left in mom and dad's heart yeah. and be both of us because yeah. you weren't there. And then when we're burying our father, you weren't there, but she actually was there. Was. She just wasn't ready to re-engage with the family. So it's, it's deep. Yeah, it
0: really is because I'm, um, I I am, it's, I have a very interesting dynamic as well, because, um. I am the baby on my mom's side, and that's two of us. So my mom had two girls, but I'm the oldest on my father's side. And there are, I believe, four or five boys underneath me on that. So I'm the only girl, biologically, I'm the only girl on my father's side. And then on my mom's side, I'm the baby girl. So I have a very interested dynamic when it comes to what I, how I'm looked at, how I'm perceived. And mm-hmm. the same thing with you, with that pedestal that you're, that you get put on. And I often think that pedestal comes in when parents feel guilty. Absolutely. Where they may have fallen short and they lack. And so now the the best way that they can make up for that is to feel proud and to, to always brag and talk about the things that you're doing, not mm. because of them, but in spite of. mm mm-hmm. you know? My grandmother raised me and I had um, throughout this last course of five, five years of my life, I've had the opportunity to have the conversations that Benny and Byron didn't necessarily get to have with their parents. Well, with one of my parents, my other parent. We're good still for
1: you working
0: on that <laughs> mm-hmm. but with two of my parents because I like to say I have this triune parent parental triangle I have my grandmother my father and my mom and um depending on the way you talk to me or we're in conversation will determine who shows up so it's like
1: <laughs> I know that's right
0: don't pick you know be careful be mindful of how you approach and so my grandmother was my main parent and then my mother and my father were kind of like, they they almost, um, I want to say they acquiesced or they they basically, whatever my grandmother decided for me is what they said ultimately afterwards. Their, their word was the second. And it's not to say that my grandmother didn't make room for them to, to do that, to be the parent, to do the parenting. But it was to say that, instead they allowed her to be the core parent and then they you know either yeah. or disagreed or whatever because she did on many occasions she was like go talk to your mom go talk to your dad about this and whatever they will see what they say and then we'll make a decision and then there are times where I was talking to my mom and my dad and it was like what did your grandmother say mm-hmm. and or, and, or there have been times it's like, well, whatever your grandma said that to do, then that's what you need to do. And so I was just like, okay, so it, it was pulled. So in different ways, but I, I definitely agree that there has been moments where I'm like, um, you got the better end of the stick. Like there are parts of me that would have desired to be in that space. But as I've gotten older, I'm now about to be 32. And I'm like, I'm actually very grateful that you decided to set me up in this way. Because if I would have ended up and it's no slight against my parents, it's just the reality. If I would have grew up in the way that I thought that I needed to grow up, I wouldn't be who I am. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: So, um, it is constantly a a cycle of forgiveness. Um, You always have to go through, especially when you hit a certain wall when it comes to being in life and relationship with people. And you realize that there are areas that you're lacking because of some things that you may not have received. And you have to also give grace to yourself. Because of that. And I think you saw that happening with Benny in particular. I was just going to say that. Yep. Yes. I'm going to wrap it. You know, I'm going to swing it back around here. I yep. think you saw that happened a lot with Benny in particular in the story where she was like, Oh, I can now make room and grace for myself and for my my parents and even for my brother in a way that I never thought was was useful or helpful before, which I think is ultimately what essentially got them to the black cake mm-hmm. um, and um, talk more about that your thoughts on that as well.
1: Yeah, well, I love everything you said and I completely wholeheartedly agree. I think the book does a great job of showing that forgiveness is not linear, that in order to really reach a point where we're able to accept what happened the way that it happened and to forgive it and to move on is to actually like feel our feelings, have our feelings about it and to be honest about how enraged we are and how unfair it is and like, what the hell, what what else is going to come out? <laughs> you know what I'm saying of the secret closet we really get to to go through the experience the emotional journey with each character and there's even a point where um this is at the end of the story I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who didn't read but when they go back to the island in part four um Byron actually he tells his grandfather off he tells his mother's father off in front of Mabel to the point where like Everybody's sort of like trying to calm him down, like chill. Mabel doesn't need to hear the circumstances of of mom's pregnancy, but he lets his grandfather know, like, yo, do you know what your daughter went through? Do you know the truth about what happened to her? And like, in, in his mind, he's like, I'm not here to make amends with you. I can't stand you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I actually, I'm enraged, all that rage, that he held back all that grief, all that confusion. Like it really comes out in that scene. And I love it because Byron was written as a character that's very much, you know, he's a PhD, he has a successful career, his wife is expecting their baby. Like he's pretty much got it all together. But the reality of it is, is that emotionally he's in shambles. Emotionally, his identity has been tied up in this you know, big brother role. You're supposed to protect your sisters. You're supposed to, you know, be a rock for your mother. And in his mind, he's failed at that because mom Mm -hmm. is actually someone that I didn't know she was. And she, in her most vulnerable moments, I wasn't enough for her, especially when she has that first accident Mm -hmm. and she ends up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he wasn't enough for Benny because she still ran away and didn't you know think twice about coming back or about the impact it would have on me and then now I'm hearing about this other sister now there's another person that I failed right like well, Mabel And then to be honest he wasn't because
0: I, I do want to say about the relationship with because technically she was his baby mama they wasn't married yet but yeah, yeah, he right. it. And they, just adding to that he wasn't enough for her either because she mm ultimately uh, rejected and, ab- and abandoned him too so mm. biden had a lot of abandonment things happening in on the yeah. inside of him and a lot of things that he had took on as what he considered to be his role in the in the family dynamic because boys always we don't talk we talk about a lot about how girls have it hard but we don't talk about mm-hmm. what it means to be a bo- a male child and maybe the only male child in the family and to be the oldest Um, and so he had a lot of weight that he had to carry as well as the man. And so quite naturally, yes, it was at some point that volcano was going to erupt and his grandfather was a safe target.
1: Oh my goodness. Lynn wasn't shit. I'm sorry. There's no better way to (laughs) say
0: it. he was not he was definitely not and I do I wholeheartedly agree he was not and I was just like but also let's even talk about that the fact that they had a, that Covey was inter was biracial yes he was Asian yeah mom was an was an island girl they don't never I don't think they ever tell us what island he was yeah. from he said that they were island people. Yeah. But, so that was an interracial marriage there as well. And he was trash, big trash, big mm-hmm. trash. And I was just like, yo, and that's a different perspective than what we normally traditionally get from about Asian culture. Like we don't mm-hmm. never, we never get that side because we yeah. have, concept an idea of what when we think of people from Asian culture we think of them a specific type of way yep So in this story Charmaine took some creative license to show us the other side and I was like oh this is different
1: I appreciated that she did that
0: I do because it definitely doesn't it doesn't affirm those narratives that we traditionally have as far as when it comes to american age and culture what we think of when we think of them or in general like every yep. culture has the good and the well not good and bad every culture has complex
1: talk about it
0: because i don't like to perceive i really don't like to put people in in the label of good person versus bad person because we all have the capabilities to be good or bad depending on the scenario or the situation. And so, um, but yeah, Benny, Benny, um, Benny and Maple actually being the people to kind of be like, yo, bro, chill Yeah. in that moment.
1: And to see, I didn't want them to hold him back either. I was like, no, let that man get this off his chest. This is the yeah. first time in the in the story where he can really be emotionally present and like speak his truth let that man curse Lynn out okay let him let him have
0: it somebody <laughs> should have been let him have it and so it's about time man to man that somebody let him have it but yes. I also appreciate the fact that Byron is respected his sisters enough to be like let me go that man was so mad he left them there that's yeah. how he, that he got. And I was like, look, I've been there before too. That man was so mad. <laughs> I, think to, I think he had to come back, right? To grab, to, he had to come back because
1: he was like, oh, wait, they ain't got no way to get, get, to get away. Yep. And, then, like, and it just shows the cowardice, right? Like some parents at the end of their life cycle can tolerate the whatever is going to come up around truth-telling. And some parents cannot. And I think Lynn really shows us in that moment just how the lack of capacity he has to even evolve. Like, I would have loved to see Lynn evolve, but the truth is, is that not all of our elders evolve. And Lynn could have used that moment to really, like, promote intergenerational healing, own up to his mistakes, and maybe make amends so that he could be a part of his grandchildren's life and his great granddaughter Byron's daughter was about to be born so like it would have been a beautiful thing to see Lynn be like you know what you guys are absolutely right like I I messed up but I want to do better by you guys and he couldn't do that and I think that that was also like real storytelling real life
0: and it's crazy because you throughout the story when you know we go into talking to letting him have his peace he you can tell he feels remorseful you can yeah. tell that he feels it, that he talks about it, but his pride would not allow him to be humble enough to apologize to his grandchildren. And to me, that's pathetic. But you brought up a very good point that all parents are not, every parent is not always ready or prepared to have those conversations. Cause yep. so I brought up going back to a point that I made earlier, like with my trying, my triangle I was able to have that conversation with two of my parents, but one of my parents, I I attempted to have the conversation, but did not receive anything back. And I was Mm. just like, but the crazy thing about it is, is that I was aware that it was going to happen that way. And I still created grace for that person. And it was just like, even with me creating grace for that person, I still also had to feel, deal with my feelings and emotions surrounding. Yeah. Why didn't you respond? I'm open to having this conversation. Why are now it will be the time for us to discuss and have this conversation.
1: Exactly.
0: Willing to have it. And, and if you had to, I literally had to gather myself gather my thoughts and say okay well you might not ever get what you think that you need and you really don't need that you just wanted to have it and and to yeah wrap it up put it where it needed to go
1: and then yeah and you deserve that right like you deserve answers even if it's not the full even if it's not black cake right you deserve for your mother your father to tell you something something real give me crumbs give me something because ultimately the story of our parents narrative informs our own whether we want it to or not I was just flipping through the book looking for um this quote i can't find it though i hope i find it before we end but there's a moment in the story where in mom's reflection to benny she tells benny like you know unfortunately whether i was aware of it or not i taught you this i taught you how to run how to abandon shit because that's what i did when i was a young girl what I had to do to survive and so yeah on Thanksgiving that day when dad and I didn't respond the way that you wanted us to when you told us that you were gay you know I we didn't do the right thing in the moment and it would have been great if maybe we had a little bit of extra time to like try to find the words or try to make a bid for repair but you ran
0: yeah
1: and when you ran it you know that was sort of like the decision was made And looking back on it now, I realize like you ran because I ran. Yeah. It didn't show you that anything more was possible. And, and we, as a family didn't give you any evidence to go off of, to think that if you didn't run, it'd be safe for you to stay. And like, I love that moment because it shows how our mothers have many secrets. You know, we, we may never know who our mothers were before they were our mothers. Yeah. And at the same time, their story is still a part of our own. We end up repeating the same patterns that our mothers did, whether we're aware that those are patterns or not. And this is where the bid for wanting to know more comes in, right? Like even you saying, I knew when I went to my parent that they probably weren't going to be capable of going there with me but I wanted to open up the door anyway that's like such a beautiful gracious thing to say that like look I I gave them the opportunity and hopefully throughout this life cycle I'll continue to open that door or try but it's really up to the parent to decide to reveal themselves and parenting there's so much emotional work required in parenting and it just doesn't get done all of the time and it's not because we don't want to heal sometimes it's just that we don't know that that healing is possible we've never seen it we can't access like mental health is not very accessible in this country especially Um, for black people there's a stigma right in our community around seeking out mental health and and support and also like I can tell you for me as a therapist, I very rarely get referrals for family therapy from Black families. It's very rare. The only time that I've really counseled Black families, unfortunately, um, has been when I worked in foster care, when I worked with an adoption agency, like the child welfare side of it. But it's very rare that like, I'll get a referral, oh, we're, we're having a divorce. We want, you know, family therapy to help us help our child through this or um. So it is deep, but I, I think that in this story, Charmaine Wilkerson does a really good job of showing how even in Benny's separation from her mother and the rupture that happens between them and that mother and daughter relationship, Benny still repeats her mother's patterns.
0: Yes, because um, that brings up a very great um, thought process. And um, like I said, I am a Christian. And so it goes into a, the course part of who I am. And it talks about generational curses
1: mm. and
0: also talking about forgiveness. And I have always been taught and I love been of the school of thought is the things that we don't forgive, we're destined to repeat. Um, yes. I have seen those things play out in my own personal life, my own personal family, but I've also saw it play out in this book and what, and it goes to what you just said, because and, and. Benny wasn't essentially aware of it, but because that was an area that had not been dealt with, the next generation repeated literally mm-hmm. repeated the exact thing that the previous generation had, mm-hmm. done, but they didn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so, there are so many things as we talk about like breaking generational curses, and like I said, from a biblical standpoint, there are so many things where. Hopefully, preferably, they're not destined to be repeated because I've been dealing with them. A lot of people in my family, um, immediate family, some of them have gone to therapy. Some of them don't go to therapy. Some of them are therapists. I have been in therapy over the course of the last four years, in and out of therapy consistently over the course of the last four years. And that has helped me tremendously in my ability to be able to move forward.
1: Because
0: thank you, I had gotten to a place where I was, I felt a little stuck. Now I've always been a very introspective person. Um, And so I've always had questions and thoughts and ideas and processing and reading didn't know it this whole entire time has been a part of therapy for me. Yes. And so in those years when I wasn't reading as much, I will say those were the years that were harder for me because reading in very many ways has been a form of escapism for me. And then also within the course of the last four to five years, because I was in the process of writing my own book, reading has been healing for me because of the books that I had to read. Like those Mm. self-help books, those um, books that were affirming. And and in the process right now I'm reading, um, which I have not picked up, but I'm reading it. I'm on chapter two and it's Try Softer. And that was a book that my therapist recommended to me because she wanted me to, to see what life would be like if I don't feel anxious and stressed all the time. And this book, even I'm just in chapter two. I want
1: to read it now. I'm like, you got to send it to me when you're done or send me the title.
0: It's so good. And this book, I'm just two chapters in, and I've been like, yo, madam I've just been highlighting. And even with that, I never used to be a person that would annotate, highlight books and stuff but I I have been that person and I've just been highlighting stuff. And that's when it's
1: good. Yeah.
0: Speaking to me, like this is still an area apparently that I have not worked on. But going to therapy, reading books that are affirming and talks about processes. And um, one of the books that has helped me tremendously was How How You Love or How We Love. That was very helpful for me um, because- It helped me understand my love language and how to change adjust where I needed to make adjustments. Um, And I've even read the Love Languages book, but How We Love takes a deeper approach to talking about specifically how you show up in loving and in in relationship with people. You know, and the Love Languages talks about behavior of things like what you like, what you don't like. How You Love talks about this is the way that you actually show up in relationships. So it's
1: an mm.
0: approach to like, you have more of a controlling nature and this is why, and this is how you can make the adjustments or yeah. these the things that you do while you operate the way you operate. And those things kind of showed up in black cake as well. Yep. If You think about it, like each one of them had different ways that they loved, that they accepted love, they appreciated love, they valued yes. love. And for Covey, most of her love came into loving her spouse and loving yes. the guy that she fell in love with as a kid. And then when they that re when they got
1: reunited, that was my favorite part of the story that, because I think her her children <clears throat> spend so much time while they're listening to her tapes and processing their own grief, wondering, but did mom die happy? We're hearing about all her trauma and it's really hard for them to listen to these tapes. And all they're thinking about in their mind is like, wow, she went through so much pain. Mm -hmm. You know, there was sexual abuse, rape. She just lost so much. And every sibling, including Mabel, was left with that one question, like, but was mom happy? And then when they make the connection that dad, that their dad is actually, I think it was, I forget his name. Uh, was it G- Gibbs? I know it starts with a G-I-B, but <laughs> Gibbs. Yeah. That dad is Gibbs. They're like, oh, snap, you know? And like, what a beautiful moment. Like, even as you're talking about reading this book and understanding the way that you love, like, that's what books do. They help us to make these deeper connections between our own lives. And in many ways, like them listening to mom's audio tape was bibliotherapy because they're literally listening to the truth about who their mother is and also who she wanted to be, right? Like how many secrets she had to keep in order to survive that she really didn't want to keep. Yeah. And I I love that part of the story, too, because I think especially for children who are adopted, there is this longing to understand the origin story. Like, why did my mother give me up? Like, when you're a kid, you internalize that as it's me. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't lovable. This is a narrative that's very harmful to children who don't get to grow up with their biological parent. And the reality of it is, is like, parents decide to give up their children for many reasons and most of the time it is based on survival either their own or for the well-being of that that child and that was one of my favorite parts of the story so you really get to hear and see just how deeply regretful mom felt about having to leave Mabel behind and Mabel gets an opportunity to hear that yeah. um yeah. and to to build a truer narrative about who she was to mom and i love that there's a moment in the kitchen i forget i think it's in part 4 where byron you know he's just thinking about like the tasks that have to get done for them to get the ashes and mm-hmm. um go through their ritual around letting letting it go and accepting you know that mom is gone and he goes into the kitchen and he sees benny and mabel like shoulder to shoulder, and they're not speaking, but they're just doing something in the kitchen and they, in their body movements and in their being, they look very similar. And he's just like watching his sisters and he's like, wow, like, yeah, that's our sister. You know what I mean? Like this is really, she's our blood. And not that he didn't, you know, believe it or anything but I just think that's a moment that was also a tender moment for me as a reader where like, wow, you know, what was it like for Mabel to her whole life have an inkling that, like, something is off? Like, yeah. I don't know. Not that she knew she was, you know, adopted, but she knew something was not being said. The truth wasn't the full truth that she was told. And so for her to be in that kitchen, in her mother's kitchen, her biological mother's kitchen with her biological siblings, um, I loved that.
0: Yeah. And for Mabel, she had it tough too, because she, like you said, she knew. She knew something wasn't right, but she couldn't quite pinpoint it. And her confrontation with her parents and yes. trying to have that conversation with them and being angry with them because of the way that it actually happened in regard yeah. to the adoption, because her adoption low key was illegal the way
1: yeah. it talk about it. And
0: so, and this happens so much to um, BIPOC women uh, still to this day. It still yep. happens. Like, it's just not happening. Yep. As- It's not as frequent, but it still happens to this day. But even thinking about that and thinking about the fact that not only was it, it wasn't that her mom didn't want her desire to have her, it's that she was stolen. Yes. And I'm just trying to think about that and the, the betrayal that has to come in when you're now looking at your parents, the people that you love that has grown and you have grown and appreciated and now changing mm. the dynamic in the story that's there with their relationship. That's a, yep. that's a big, drastic, immediate change to who you are as a person.
1: Yes. Cause that's different than a secret, a lie and a secret, two different things. They lied to her. Mhm.
0: Her whole life. And they affirmed the lie her entire life. And so now you've betrayed me and now the place that I once deemed to be safe is now unsafe. Yes. So now I have to think about that and then also thinking about her process of grief because she's also a parent. And so thinking about her process yeah. because now I have lost two people that I yeah. care about very deeply and compassionately one of them I never met but the fact that I'll never get the opportunity to physically meet you that's still a form of grief for her on absolutely that she had for Louis. yeah
1: I would have liked to see Mabel go off yeah her adaptive mom I really wanted Mabel and that but this is also true about grief right Is like sometimes we can't access our rage when we're flooded, and. I know this to be true. (laughs) Right. You know what I'm saying? So do I. And so that's the only thing that I will say with like ambitious books like this is it leaves you wanting, there's always going to be a character that you feel like didn't get fully fleshed out or that you wanted to get more vindication in the story. Like I want them able to go the heck off. (laughs) And a few people, but definitely your biological parents for that reason, because they're, even in parenting, right? Like sometimes I read books, Now that I read before becoming a parent and I I feel so differently about it because now that I am a parent, I understand how it just there's always going to be can never be enough. You can't be everything to your children. You can't be everything to all of your children. And every child is different and needs a different kind of parenting, a different part of you. And you spoke to this earlier, like thinking about our identity and our experiences and parts, parts of our lives, parts of our memories, parts of our identities. Um, And so I think like this book highlights just how parenting as a practice is always going to be imperfect. You could do everything right. You could do everything right. And your child will still grow up and have something, a criticism about what you weren't to them or what they needed that they didn't get. That's just like the reality of it because it's the world that we live in. And because also, especially in BIPOC communities that are, you know, multi-stressed families, there's not enough supports in place in society to fully be emotionally attuned to your children. We're all in survival mode so much of the time, just trying to pay the bills, just trying to survive this pandemic, just trying not to get monkeypox, just trying to, you know, find the right school, make sure that our children, you know, um, are, are having their needs met, their basic needs met at the very least. So this really highlights that. And I think in... The audio tape like mom is really just trying to make amends mm-hmm. like she's really trying to let them know like look y'all I kept this from you um but the best gift that I can give you in my death is the truth yeah. this is me being the best parent oh, so, this is me leaving you you know with the truth of of our legacy so that you can rewrite your narrative and, and create the life of your dreams and have a different story, right? Like your story begins with mine and I'm gonna tell you the truth about all of it, but your story doesn't have to end the way mine's did. And I think that that's like the best gift that a parent can give to a child.
0: Yes, um, you. Um, I don't know about you, but I know for me, um, when I hit my thirties, the way I understood appreciated and considered and thought about the relationships that I have with my parents drastically changed yep because I like I said I'm almost 32 but when I turn or was preparing to turn 30 it's like something happens in your body your body changes your thoughts change and that switch you grown you grown now you grown grown now and yet switch over comes and it comes quick, and then you're like, Oh, I am finally at an age where I don't have to ask people permission to actually do and live and think for yes. myself. Yes. And, and that has been a lot of the deprogramming that has been happening for me over the course of the last seven years, really, since I turned 25. A lot of deprogramming has been happening. But when you when I hit my 30s, I was like wait a minute this is different this this is different in a way but it was a good difference but then in when the 30s came in the amount of compassion and empathy that I really began to think about as I also think about my own life and how hard sometimes it can be in survival mode I was like at this age my parents were married getting divorces talk
1: about
0: it they were also trying to keep roofs over their heads
1: yeah
0: they were struggling financially they had never really had jobs that paid them enough money to take care of themselves and kids okay and i don't have half of the things that they have had to endure girl give them a break yeah it, you know, like it, give them a break get yourself a break yeah and, like one of the best things that my father said to me that also helped free me up in ways that I didn't know where I needed the freedom is when I was having my conversation with him and he said to me I did the best thing that I knew how to do and I took you to my mother he's mm-hmm. like I, I chose Yes, it's not why, but I just <laughs> yeah and girl, I had chills too when he said it. He was like, I didn't abandon you, I just took you to the place that I knew you could be get the care that you needed.
1: And that was an act of love. And that was to, to be you know, I knew that I couldn't be the father that you needed. I couldn't give you what you needed, so I brought you to the place girl. I knew you would be taken care of best. Like, hello that you would, uh, I I'm about to start crying. Me too, <laughs> that you would
0: be provided for, you will be taken care of, you will be protected. Girl, you talk about, I'm about like, listen, Yeah, eyes right now. And that,
1: me too, child. It's like, how many fathers want to say this to their daughters, but don't have the language? Or maybe Ooh. there's never been a door open available to, to start to have that conversation. So that's also kudos to you for reaching a point Well, you could also like own your anger and your disappointment, but lay compassion over it. Because when we lay compassion over it, we can connect. Now we can connect and we're not isolated in our angry place. Now your father has an entry point to say to you, baby girl, I did the most loving thing that I could do as your father. My job was to protect you and to provide for you. And I brought you to my mother because I knew that that's where you would be kept.
0: Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. But the thing about it was- and it freed him up too right that changed that moment with my dad changed the trajectory of my life from that point forward because I was like wait a minute father of mine like and then also he gave me space to be angry to be up I love that to have conversation and I was just like Wow, and when we think about and like I said, I like I'm I, I'm gonna keep telling y'all I'm a Christian. So even when thinking about God's love, how He opens up the space for us to be angry, like people, mm, people amen. Say that you're angry with God, folk will be like, "What? You're going yeah. to hell." but God opens up the space for you to be upset for you to bring those frustrations. That scripture literally says, bring all to me, all those who are burdened and And that means
1: something
0: and it's real. It is a real thing. And so I was, I'm a
1: Christian as well. And it's crazy. You're bringing this up because I just had this conversation with a client the other day, we were reading red lip theology. And she was just talking about how she's really struggling in intimacy in her relationship with God. She felt so close to God when she was younger, but you know, she's drifted away. She's mourning the loss of her grandmother and it's been heavy. Mm -hmm. And I told her my journey because when my grandmother died, I was enraged at God and how there's a metaphor that has helped me better understand intimacy with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Once I became a parent, because being able to move through All of our emotions is key in a relationship, and being able to tolerate what comes up for the person we love is important. So, like, I think about it how when my daughter, she's two, right? Sometimes she gets sick of me, or I say no, and it's no. She's a tourist. She will cry, stomp. She will have a whole tantrum because it's no, and she is sick of me. She'll walk away. But when she's over it, she knows like, okay, you can be mad at mommy. I can tolerate you being mad at mommy. Mommy still loves you when you're mad at me, though. I'm still going to come check in on you, baby girl. Are you ready for lunch? Do you want your peanut butter and jelly? Right. And it's the same thing with the Lord. We're like, we are the daughters of the most high God. There is no nothing that we can say, nothing that we can do that will remove us from the love of God, period, period. The way that the lord loves us is the way that a father loves his children you cannot be in relationship to the lord without being angry with him sometimes without yeah. doubting questioning him having your little toddler tantrum that is key to the relationship because in that after we are done having our tantrum after we are done you know cursing god out and having all of our thoughts and feelings about it he's yeah. still gonna be there he's still gonna be there because he is god Still going to be there, still going to show up
0: as daddy, still going to show up as Abba and do what needs to be. That's did. right. And then once That's you put right. out them tears and crying and all that stuff, <laughs> you, you, you done? You okay. done? <laughs> is, like, because if you think about Job's story in the Bible, we don't teach that part. We don't teach you know, that part after Job, you know, Job goes through all, we always think about teaching about the trials and the tribulations that Job had to face and the hardship that happened to him. We don't teach the parts where Job start questioning God yep. and got angry and yep. start talking. Finally, he broke and said, you know, to the father and all that. He brought every burden to him. And, then, and for like six six or seven chapters, God let him say whatever he needed to say. And then when chapter 40, 41 comes in, God like, you done? Okay, so um, did you create the foundations of the earth? Okay. And he checked him in a way that it was, he checked him, but it was so loving and so kind and full of love and compassion that after he checked him, he built them back up. And then Job was like, oh, who am I? And he he checked himself. And it was like, when I learned that there was space and room for me to have actual
1: relationship with God, it was. So that's the intimacy. That's when you get into real intimacy.
0: My life changed forever. And yes. so that's kind of what we also saw sort of kind of at the end of black cake and yeah. that ultimately ended up eating
1: the cake. Yeah, yeah. Well, it goes back, doesn't, Um, I forget how the scripture goes, but the apostle Paul says, you know, when I was a child, I understood things as a child. And then when I became a man, I understood things as a man. And it goes back to, Job sort of rebelling against God and also our personal feelings, right? Because I remember being, you know, a young girl in Bible study at church, Mm -hmm. you know, and in in class hearing about the story of Job, I was so confused. Like, why would God allow one of his greatest servants who's so loyal to him to go through this? Like my Sunday school teacher was like, nothing can happen that God doesn't allow. So in my little, you know, seven-year-old mind, I'm thinking, well, why would God let (laughs) like him go through this now as a parent i understand because it's like it's almost like um thinking of a parenting example like the first day of school right like your kid is terrified and they don't want separation anxiety they don't want you to drop them off at school and leave them like what? you're gonna leave me here i don't know these people right but as a parent you know baby you gotta go to school yeah. You're of age, it's developmentally appropriate, everybody has to go. So yeah, yeah it's going to be hard. And you're going to have separation anxiety. Shoot, I'm going to have separation anxiety. But this is life. And this is the life cycle. And I'm preparing you for the world. You can't be at home with me forever. I yeah. got to go to work, you got to go to school. And now is the time. Ready to go so in your, your child's mind they're thinking oh my god you're abandoning me you're the worst parent ever I'm not emotionally ready for this right like the child is going through what they understand through the eyes of a child and as a parent you're like I'm sorry this is what it is but once that child adjusts and the first week of school goes by now they're making friends now then they're like oh okay I could get with this like next thing you know you wake up every morning grab your backpack and you're ready to go you're excited to go to school but at first you thought Your parent was abandoning you. They were being ruthless. They were being, you know, so focused on having to get to work that day. And so it is like a powerful metaphor for the ways that like the parent has an experience too, that they're going through. Like it was painful for the Lord to see what Job was experiencing, but he knew that this was a part of his ultimate plan. Yes there's always a plan and I think for mom like that this was always her plan it feels like like when you get to the book you realize like she always wanted to tell her story she just she didn't have very many opportunities I don't think she had an opportunity really because Benny you know moves away and then doesn't ever pick up her phone or you know um respond to her brother and her mother's attempts to reconnect and then with Byron it's like I think about it from a mother's perspective, even if she told her story exclusively to Byron, it wouldn't have felt right because Benny wasn't there. So there's like a way that mom made the best decision that she could with the information that she had at the time. And unfortunately it was on her deathbed, which is like, no child wants that, but that was the best that she could do. And she did it. And that's the part that I love. She did it. She told the truth and we can work with the truth. We can't work with the with lies though. We can't work with no information either.
0: Work with either. <laughs> the truth, no matter how you flip it and put it down. You can work with it, and um, we are at our hour, which has been an amazing, fantastic hour, and we gonna have to have a whole nother conversation on. Yes, great. But, like even going back to the thought process of Joe. It's like in the Bible when when and we don't even talk about this either. Satan had to come ask permission to even touch him. Talk about it. In the, talk about it. God had to remove the hedge around him for him to even be able to touch him. And God knew God trusted Job enough and his character enough to know that you can do whatever you want to do to him. Guess what? He's still gonna be my child. He's still going that's be- right. To lean in, even through all of that frustration, and I think as parents, you realize and recognize that too. Like, even yeah. when you think about the first day of school. When you think about your child going into life, it is a scary feeling that you have. To
1: terrifying.
0: Release them to the world, but understanding that they have to do that in order yeah. for them to to expound, to learn, to grow, and to understand what life would be like outside of home with mommy That's and daddy. Right. And for you to be able to really get the Just become the fantastic person that I know for you to be in order for you to really fully become a full circle, well-rounded person. You have to be out. We have to release you.
1: Yes.
0: And
1: And we do our children an injustice when we try to protect them and hover over them and not let them evolve.
0: You sure do. You sure do. Because then now they got to relearn things that they could have learned earlier because you was trying to protect them. But Mm -hmm. you'd be here all
1: day. (laughs)
0: going because this this was a great 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 i
1: really enjoyed it and thank you so much for having me on i feel like i almost spot the holy ghost so yes. love. <laughs> let me bring it in really girl because we but really that's what like this is why bibliotherapy it's the one man it's it's the methodology that I love because stories are we all have a story we all have the power to change Mm -hmm. the narrative Mm -hmm. we all have multiple narratives right that are running through the course in our veins and so we get to decide we get to choose how to write our life story and and sometimes we have a little information to go off of based on our history and our legacy and our ancestors and sometimes we don't And making peace with all of that and finding a way to access language, to share in community, our stories, to know that we're not alone as we figure this stuff out. Like, this is the beautiful thing about books and literature and healing practice. That's what it's all about. And you keep it
0: going because, like I said, your post be blessing me
1: and i'm thank you sis
0: not my therapist but she my therapist from afar because i I appreciate these posts so continue to do that please let the people know where they can follow you on what platforms you're on and um i just want to thank y'all as always for always being here and watching
1: Oh, man, thank you so much, Bree. Y'all can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at literapy_nyc underscore NYC. And on my website, www.literapynyc.com. I am accepting new clients for the fall. You can also book a one-on-one, one-time bibliotherapy session with me. It's a 50-minute session where after we speak about some relevant themes that have been coming up in your life and your mental health journey, I will recommend three personalized book recommendations after I assess your reading style and genre preferences okay listen I might have the book one myself. (laughs) you should I actually have a summer special going on right now bibliotherapy one-on-one session is usually 150 for the 50 minute hour right now I'm running a summer special until September 1st for 100 for the hour including the personalized book recs so you can book me directly on my website or at the link in my bio on social media Awesome, awesome. Thank you all for being here.